Hello, and welcome to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation tour-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles. I'm Elizabeth Uni, the co-host of this podcast, Chair and Associate Professor with the Torah College of Pharmacy in New York. Our guest for the day is Naomi Clapper. Naomi is a full-time faculty member with the Lantern College for Women and the Deputy Chair of the Department of Psychology. She's also a licensed mental health counselor for the Lantern College Counseling Center. In addition to teaching, Naomi is also a licensed clinical therapist and maintains a private practice in Manhattan. She's a recipient of several teaching awards including the student-nominated Teacher of the Year Award at Lander College and the prestigious America's Top Teachers Award. She recently won the Toro Presidential Award for Teaching, and we are happy to have Naomi with us today for the show. Naomi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tell us a little bit about your teaching journey. When did you start teaching and where are you now with your, te- with your teaching journey? I began not as a teacher. I actually began working in the industry as an industrial and organizational psychologist. It didn't have the impact or the meaning that I thought it would have. And you train to be able to help people prevent burnout and find work satisfaction. And then when you go into the actual industry, it's nothing like that at all. So I went back and I trained for a clinical degree. And in 1986, I began to teach first as an adjunct at YUN Stern and Turo, and eventually in 1989, full-time at Turo. Even though my degree was in clinical work, I had gone back and retrained teaching really became an absolute love from the get-go. You really have impact, not just educationally, but on a personal level. I It became really my full-time focus in 1989. And then in 2001, when I took over as chair, that also had impact on a macro level. The department is four times as large Now, as when I took it over in 2001, both in majors and in actual courses we offer, the number of students who major in psychology, it's the largest major in the school now, and also just the the focus of starting an internship program so the students would have real life clinical internships experiences, research experiences. We have 100% success rate in graduate programs. So I really feel like they go on in their lives and you have intro on that macro level, but also on the micro level, on individuals. I have students who, when they defend their dissertation five years later, call me up 
and they thank me for putting them on this path. I mean, I think they're thanking me. They're calling me up and remembering me. It's very hard to defend a dissertation. So maybe they're, it's a mixed uh, feeling, but they remember I put them on that path and they talk about this journey and you see them at conferences and you see them professionally. And I help them network with our alum, our students who are currently here and our alum for opportunities. And you just feel like you're having a broad stroke impact and also on an individual level. That's really beautiful. The macro and the micro level you're putting to that. You won the Toro Presidential Award for Teaching and you have been a faculty for over three decades. Tell us what you enjoy the most as an academician or what makes you still want to be a faculty? Right, it's a great question. Um, so that, of course, I was very honored to get the Presidential Award for Teaching, but actually my most cherished award is also the student-nominated and the student-elected awards. The Presidential Teaching Award was from my peers, which was very touching, but the students have senior dinners and they award faculty. And I've received a few awards from those student dinners. The award that I didn't win, that is really the most coveted award, is the teacher most likely to be mistaken for a student, which is a mock <laughs> award. So I just want to tell you, Elizabeth, I did not get that award. But but to there's award, you know, most uh, teacher with most impact, teacher of the year award. So those are teaching words that are very cherished because really, if you're, if you're doing this, you're really doing this to, to have impact on the students. Um, I really love that I teach women and I feel that we are creating at Lander College for Women a community of women who are role models for the women that we are teaching. We are professional women, all of us. I've worked full time since my marriage in 1983. I also have a family, I have children, I have grandchildren, I've had a, a, a long career, very long. We won't count the years. Hopefully there are no, no math majors listening to the podcast. But being a role model to them and developing a real support for them in college and even beyond college where alumni will reach out to me. I received an email today of an alum who's looking for a position and trying to role model to them what a professional woman means. Also someone from their community um, who understands the unique challenges and nuances of their community, of someone who doesn't feel like they have to choose, that they can create a work-life balance with very meaningful and involved work, and also to have a family that is very enriched in your family life. I mentioned previously that I go to these career fairs that we have every year at Turo, and I speak to the people who are at the career fair, and I say, what do our students need? What, what skills are they missing? What soft skills are they missing? And I try and find the gaps that the students um, are missing that make them successful in the world beyond the classroom academics, beyond just psychology and their required courses and their electives and their exposure to the field, but just the skills they need for life. How are they coming across to these interviewers and these, these corporate leaders who are coming in to meet with our students? And then I develop these, um, I call them brown bag luncheon discussions. And 
I teach these soft skills. The luncheon discussions, by the way, are things that students also request. So before midterms and before finals, students ask for specific things like, you know, improving memory skills, or at the end of every year, I run a preparing for life after college. But also from those career fairs, things that they say the students don't know how to have a maybe a soft startup when they're building rapport when they meet a recruiter so we talk about interviewing skills and establishing rapport just things that they need for life in the brown bag luncheon discussions i also have an opportunity to discuss issues that go beyond the classroom but are psychologically relevant so for example psychological aspects of dating and relationship is something that we present some of our students are married, so I've done workshops on marriage and making marriage work in the 21st century. Insomnia is a very, curing insomnia is a very well attended workshop. So just things that the students feel they need in their life beyond the classroom as well. Wow, that's so beautiful. Because I think at times we faculty get so cornered into the academic part and teaching only the academy. And I can see how you are making it doing all-rounder experience for the students, which is so important. Tell me what is the best part of classroom teaching and what is still a challenge for you in the classroom teaching? It's a great question because when you do something for many decades, you are constantly renewing and refreshing and sort of bringing it up to date. I think that because I teach psychology, it's very important to apply it to the real world. They learn these, you know, theories, Erickson developmental psychology, how we're developing from the minute we're born to the, the moment we die. But what does that mean in the trench of clinical work? What does that mean in life? I'm always grateful that I have this clinical experience and that I bring that clinical experience into the classroom with a composite of case studies of things that they're going to come across maybe as clinicians if they go into therapy, what they're going to cross, come across even in their life. Today, we were working, we were talking about personality disorders in my abnormal psychology class. To explain what that will look like, even if you come into someone who has some part of this disorder who you're working with as a work colleague or in your personal life, what that would seem like um, and to make it come alive. So I think that is the best part of teaching, that challenge of not just teaching them theory, but in psychology, you can actually put it into a real life practice. Most of the students want to go into the field of psychology. So applying that information that they're learning is so important. And then the second part of your question was actually the challenge of the students of teaching and, and understanding that every single student that you're teaching is an individual and they walk in with their own package and they walk in with their own life experiences, many of them painful experiences. And you don't know that walking in, you don't do an intake on every student the way you would do in a clinical practice. So you're teaching very sensitive information about depression, suicidality, about eating disorders, but we really don't know what their own traumas are. Are they in the middle themselves of getting a divorce? Are they struggling with OCD? Sometimes students 
want to share things in class that they think will help break a stereotype, but perhaps it's oversharing and how to help them navigate that, that they feel like sort of drawn at the moment to share something that maybe later they might regret sharing or things that go on in their extended family that they'll come afterwards after class and they'll say, you taught about bipolar and how it has a genetic component, but my parent has bipolar. And what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my siblings and my children one day? So to really navigate in psychology, how to treat them with the sensitivity of individuals. And it doesn't just have to be in the field of psychology. Every teacher is navigating students and they're so focused very often on the academics, but students are walking in, swimming upstream in this stage of life where they're trying to establish their adult identity, establish their careers, establish love relationships, you know, get a sense of who they are. It's a very complicated time to be an 18, 19, 20 year old in our society. Um, it's a fearful time for a lot of students about the future. It's a time that they struggle to be optimistic, many of them. And I think that trying to help support them and not just throw information at them, right? Not just teach them how to think, but also support them in a journey is really an important mandate for teachers. Wow, Mary, you put it down so beautifully as to the significance or the importance as to why we should be considering the student, uh, not just from the academic point of view, but as a, as a person, as a holistic person, right? In psychology or in healthcare, we always say, look at your patient holistically. And I think it's the same with the students too, looking at them holistically and treating them like that. Yes, I love that. And I think medicine is much better, by the way, nowadays looking holistically, because we have so much more focus on the mind-body connection and how a lot of mental health issues can either cause or exacerbate illnesses, but illnesses can also trigger things whenever I have a patient and they come in. And this may be interesting to you on a personal level, given your background in pharmacy, when I have a patient come in and they have a symptom and they've never had that symptom before, depression, hallucinations, the first thing I do is get them to get a metabolic workup to get them to go to their intern and make sure that they're healthy because they could have temporal lobe seizures, God forbid, or, or certain kinds of cancer like pancreatic cancers that could be causing this depression. That cancer, very often the first symptom is depression. So the mind-body connection has really become a focus of both psychology and medicine and the understanding how they are, you know, that door swings both ways. They are, we're all holding hands together. So true. So Toro actually puts out a lot of uh, resources for their faculty. We have, we put a lot of effort into making our faculty one of some of the best faculty out there. So tell us about some of the Toro resources that you have used personally to become a better teacher. Okay, great. Well, I really do appreciate that Toro does run Toro faculty development sessions. Um, in my opinion, they are underused resources because they always get really top people in the field. And I encourage my faculty to attend, and they're wonderful, especially now that we have the option to attend on Zoom and in person. They have research days where 
faculty can present their research and we hear, uh, you know, it's just so inspiring to hear about the work of others, but it also, it's like brainstorming when someone presents something, it sparks our imagination as well. I think one of our best resources that people may not even realize is our own alumni that I am in touch with many, many of our alumni and that our alumni provide valuable, meaningful internship opportunities and career opportunities. Um, I even have an alum that I just hired to come back and who finished her doctorate uh, about five years ago and has been working in the field. And she's gonna come back now as full-time faculty, which is a wonderful role model for our students. She graduated our division. And when I go to conferences, I very often just stand outside and run into alum in the hall and connect them, um, connect them with research opportunities. We have three students who from those just alum connections at conferences were able to get internships that did not just research, but were able to present posters at those same conferences of their research. And I, you know, one of them was about trauma and um, the support that that when you go through trauma, having support and the impact on outcomes in surgery. And I brought over one of the world-renowned trauma specialists to look at the poster that was being presented by our student. Our student was a little intimidated to present to this expert, but still touched on the less that he stood and listened to her presentation and asked thoughtful questions. But all of that was made possible by our alum, by me going and standing there and connecting with them and finding out what they're up to and getting their phone number. And you know, our alumni also have gone to all these wonderful graduate programs. So when our students are thinking and deciding and about to go for their interviews, to a doctoral program, they can contact the alum who went to that program and the alumni can talk a little bit about their experience and what the graduate school's really like from an insider's perspective. So I think that's one of our greatest resources, honestly. Awesome, awesome. Tora has several new faculty. If you have to give an advice to them based on your teaching journey, what will be that advice to our new faculty? Oh, great. Well, I, I actually do mentor new faculty. Um, and there are some things that I'm very passionate about that I try and get new faculty to do. I can't make them, but I definitely encourage them. Um, the first is that there are, in our school, older faculty who have been teaching here for decades, such as myself, but other really masterful teachers. And I really encourage new faculty to reach out and make form a connection and ask them for mentorship, ask them for input. Um, I even encourage them to sit in the senior faculty member's classroom and just see a different approach, a different way of presenting that can make such a difference. What I find, Elizabeth, is that young faculty are very good with technology. They don't blink. They want you want a PowerPoint. They can have with all kinds of like bells and whistles the next day. Zoom is like easier than swimming for them. It's not a problem. But there are certain, you know, engaging a student and understanding how to really teach critical thinking or really seeing why that student might be struggling on a personal level. 
picking up nuances of an undetected learning disability. These are things that people who have experience of decades in the trench of teaching can do that younger faculty can't always do. So a younger faculty might show me something that they, they're very frustrated that all their essays are really not getting the nuances of the class. And I'll say, well, maybe they have a, a reading comprehension issue or an auditory processing issue or dysgraphia where they can write, but they can't really express themselves in writing. And maybe it's undetected even. So there are sort of nuances, even something as simple as I find that when I teach, I stand and I walk around the classroom and I make eye contact with the people in the back and the people over the computer and try and engage them and give them that energy. And a new faculty member might like sit in the front in front of their notes or in the corner in the dark and just look at her PowerPoint and not realize that they're not really connecting to the students and really engaging and making them feel like their presence is felt and important. Um, so I think that there's a lot to be learned from the senior faculty members and vice versa. I also encourage new faculty and I know it's hard, but it has to be a no ego amigo moment. I encourage new faculty to really look at student evaluations as an opportunity because we very often get triggered and defensive by student evaluations. There's resistance. But if we look at it as a time to see ourselves through other people's eyes, how are we coming through in their eyes? It's really a wonderful opportunity. You think in your mind's eye that you're caring, but is that coming through to the students in their comments? Are they saying, like I see sometimes students write, she's very caring, she cares about this, the, teach, the students individually, um, she's very kind, teacher, very patient. Those are in remarkable compliments to a teacher. You may feel that you care, but are you coming through as you care? Are you coming through clearly? Do you articulate? You think you're organized in your mind's eye, but do the faculty evaluations say you're disorganized? Are you coming across as all over the place, as one student's uh, comment might say to a faculty member? So instead of looking at student evaluations as something that to be defensive of, it's important to see them as opportunities for feedback. How are you coming through? And taking our ego off the table and really seeing this as a wonderful opportunity to sharpen and polish our teaching skills. A few more thoughts. One of them is, I mentioned before, that students really walk in with a lot of their own challenges. Anxiety and depression are way up in college level students and, and graduate level students, way up. You can't even compare the numbers. Now, pre-COVID and before COVID, it was really still much higher than 10 years before that. And it's its really own topic about why, so I'm not gonna go into why. But I feel that faculty almost have to, sit, to say to themselves, um, it's time to take a Hippocratic oath like that doctors take that oath of first do no harm. That when we walk into a classroom, we're not just here to make sure the information is taught. So if we don't think they're doing their work or we don't think we're teaching and they're listening, then we need to fail them. I really think we need to see this as an oath to not harm the students and all their struggles and themselves as a person and to try and understand the, the student behind the person behind that student, rather, 
and what's going on with them on a personal level. Because a lot of students are dealing with their own challenges in both learning and personal. And they need to understand that the faculty member is there to try and also be supportive and not judgmental and to inspire and not to shred them. It's also very important. We are all post COVID and it's been an awakening for a lot of faculty members because before that they didn't always think that they had to be aware of what's going on in the world around them and how it might be impacting the student. But then we all almost overnight, to the credit of Dr. Kadish, that it was seamless, switched to Zoom, like overnight. Mm-hmm. And students were home alone, isolated, had to fly home quickly. Those who were still in the dorm were very fearful. Some people couldn't get home. Parents had immunocompromised situations and they, they had to stay locally. And it was a fearful time in the world. And so there was a lot of involvement from the chairs to make sure the faculty checked in with the students and asked how they were doing and were like sensitive to their challenges. But I'd love that experience to be what we call in the field, post-traumatic growth. I'd love the faculty to hold on to that and to take that post-traumatic growth and say, Students are always going through things. It's not just during COVID when the whole world was kind of holding hands together through this unprecedented time where the world was upside down and we're all sheltering in place. I really want, and at that time I did recordings to the student body about mental health and about tips to maintain mental health during that time. But we kind of all need those faculty members who take the time to care and to stay when they see us, you seemed a little upset in class. Do you want to come to my office during office hours? You seemed lost. I noticed you weren't here last week. Are you feeling all right? Not every faculty member even takes attendance. But if you don't take attendance, do you notice when the students aren't there? And how does a student feel if they're out for two weeks and you didn't notice and you didn't ask them, you didn't email them or reach out to them? So I think that we've learned from COVID that there we need to be sensitive to what's going on with students as individuals and as people. And honestly, if you reach out to the students on an individual level, you can have more impact as well, because then you're really connecting to them as a person. Awesome. And the last teaching advice I would give to, to faculty is that you know when we teach men and we teach women to be successful in the world, they have different challenges, they have different needs. I am very lucky in that I teach women and I don't, I'm not sort of dividing my focus. I've, I've taught men before. I've taught at Yeshiva University. I've taught in Lander College for men and Turo College for men. But we really can customize sometimes what the needs are, the challenges of women going out in the world and men going out into the world. And they may need different things. Um, I mentioned when I speak to the career service, the career day, the career fair, and the people who come to the career fair about what our students are missing. And they will tell me, well, the women are missing these skills and the men are missing these skills. They pick up on it. And if we can then give that back to them and try and sort of customize what they might need, maybe some of the soft skills for some of the men about establishing rapport, whereas women might need more, you know, how to be more assertive 
and how to, in a group, interrupt and, you know, lean in, as we call it, um, that's gotten a lot of focus. Wow. So those are the things I would think that faculty can keep in mind. Nami, that's beautiful. All those advice for us and faculty out there who is still trying to figure out, you know, how to be the best and how to teach. And everything is changing so fast and COVID just accelerated the change too. So figuring your own way and also helping the students to figure their own way. It was beautiful, the advice that you have been giving to the, to the faculty out there. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today and talking to us about your teaching journey, your experiences, uh, what you like and what we should be doing uh, to keep our students uh, successful or to make our students successful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. It was really an honor. I want to inspire future teachers because it's such an important role. It's such a pivotal time. They're so idealistic. They're at their idealistic height and they're just starting their journey as people, not just as students, not just in their career. So it's such it's a very exciting time to be involved with their growth. So I hope that this was helpful to the faculty. 100%. Thank you so much, Naomi. You're welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in and listening to our podcast. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.